This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you for an hour now of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. I'm here through the power of, uh, of uh, paracetamol today. <laughs> a, did you know um, Victoria is currently going through an influenza spike? Oh, really? Yeah, there's been twice as many <clears throat> cases of influenza reported up until uh, this day. So you actually have influenza I or don't some I other really, form of I really mild nasal not, infection. But, um, but yes, I'm, uh, I'm here through yeah. the power of pharmaceuticals today. Yeah. I really hope you do not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're doing the same thing, less yeah. than a meter away. Yeah. Like, wow. So I really hope Dr. Say, Crystal isn't sick. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning. Uh, good to see you too. And uh, flu vaccine, yep. always. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm not sure if I had that yet. No, um, it's not it's time yet. It's well, too no, no, early. I had it, had it last <laughs> year. The, the other voice you can hear, folks, is Dr. Kat Snow. She was in as a guest a few weeks back, and she's come in to, to help us again and knows a lot about epidemiology and diseases. So you've just moved a foot further away from Crystal since she started talking. I'm uh, a retracted into the wall. <laughs> nice, yeah. nice enclosed sound improve sound well, enclosed room. It's great. The Triple R studio though is kept at a very low temperature, which I find helpful. So um, when people come in and they smell bad or they have infectious agents on them, um, because Laura, who is our immunologist queen, often comes in with something from some country she's just recent, recently visited. So anyway, um, folks, we've got a couple of good guests coming up a little bit later in the show, but we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Crystal, do you want to start us? Well, I actually have some disappointing news in science this week with um, another setback in the search for treatments for Alzheimer's disease yeah. with two uh, major uh, clinical trials actually being halted and abandoned um, in their later stages of uh, of drug development, um, and, and this—it's—it's it's a real um, uh, shock for uh, people who and those who are hoping uh, to progress uh, Alzheimer's treatments towards patients. The drug um, is uh, aducanumab, and um, it held really high promise because it's a monoclonal antibody drug, which right. actually directly targets and clears amyloid plaques from the brain. And you may remember that in Alzheimer's disease, it's the appearance of these um, uh, protein buildups, which are called plaques, that sort of sit in between the neurons in the brain that is a sort of a hallmark trait of Alzheimer's disease. So much of the development of new therapies for Alzheimer's disease is focused on on targeting yeah. and clearing these plaques. And it's really ho- hoped that these two clinical trials um, would, you know, really provide some... Uh, some relief for patients in, in either slowing or halting the progression of Alzheimer's disease. But an interim analysis showed that really the drug actually had no chance of making a difference for patients. Mm. Um, although it was still doing what it was meant to be doing. Right. And so this is where the, we start to start ask some questions and sort of say, well, it raises concerns about this, this particular approach to Alzheimer's disease. You know, there's lots of failures of Alzheimer's drugs, I think. Mm. Like, which, which is good because it means we're trying. You know, we've, we, you know, there's lots of effort being put in, lots of new therapies being put forward. But it may be that, that targeting the um, beta amyloid protein, you know, that, that approach might need to be rethought. And so there's now a shift with, you know, a number of these trials of drugs that and, that target these um, amyloid proteins have failed. And it's like, actually, maybe it's time to go back and start mm. to actually more seriously pursue other options. There's other targets in the brain, other proteins that might be involved in, um, in Alzheimer's pathology and the development of disease. You know, there's talk about, well, maybe we should actually be focusing on regeneration, like brain, um, mm. you know, rebuilding and reconnecting 
um, some of that neurological activity or even focusing on decreasing the inflammation that's happening during the disease process. And it may be that like lots of complex diseases, it's not either or. It's probably a combination mm. of, 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 of the above in that, you know, amyloid targeting might be part of the problem, but it's not sufficient to actually provide benefits to patients in, in improving their symptoms and their, and their quality of life. And we, we had uh, Professor Ashley Bush talking about this about a year ago in one of our live broadcast from the performance space and, and he works on the build-up of iron in the brain not the amyloid plaques as the primary cause for for alzheimer's so i mean there's a lot of i think there's a lot of rethinking of this because so many of those drug treatments have gone after the the plaques and they're not they're not having this sort of impact that we would have liked to have seen I, so. I, have, I have a question for the two of you being more savvy on the medical research side if it's been so focused on amyloid how is the research community responding to all the other ideas? You had Ashley Bush on here. Mm. Um, that was the first time I'd heard of it. So when when you get a, a strong focus on trying to achieve one solution to a disease, do the other alternatives get less scientific? Well, well for a while. But Are I they think less the receptive from other researchers? Yeah. No, no, we're working on this. No, no, it's no, not the, the other thing. The difference, what you've got to remember is that billions of dollars from pharma companies have been invested in, in some of these pathways and they haven't, they haven't come out with a solution in two decades. So, you know, a lot of the other areas are fringe and until recently they haven't, you know, a lot of them I suspect haven't had a lot of support. But it does raise, yeah, it does raise the question of, of how science is funded. If mm. we continue to only fund the things we've already funded in the past, yeah. um, you know, we, it's time to actually start for a new approach because really at the end of the day, I think the take home message from this is we still struggle to understand the basic biology mm. of the brain, let yeah. alone the basic biology of the disease of the brain. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. I think that, you know, brain research is actually one of the biggest challenges for 20th century science. Yeah. Well, it's complicated very complicated so dr ray what do you uh, got dr shane i i have a I, we have a little thought experiment to do so you're out at do night i have to do work out, sunday no, no, morning no, no, and no. i drank a lot last night good for you yeah well you know the cat's looking at me because she, she uh, any alcohol is bad i remember you we're, we're, we're going to go back to the science part now all right. so i, I want to take a thought experiment all right so it's evening, it's, it's nighttime, you're taking a nice stroll, you're with your partner, you're looking up, there's no clouds in the sky, there's very few stars in the sky, and you look up and, and as staring at the dark sky, you kind of go, it feels like there's almost a glow, mm. like some type of night glow, and you're thinking, wow, I'm with my partner, is that love? No, it's chemiluminescence. Oh, and, 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 and so, um, did you know <coughs> night glow is a thing? That it's, yeah. I, I did not. Um, so we, we know that our night sky is illuminated from stars and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and as it turns out, when they started tracking the night sky and the brightness of it, even a hundred years ago, they went, you know, we see the star, we, we can estimate the light from stars and the lights from other things, but there's still this background brightness that's in our night sky. It's not just light pollution? No, no, it's not light pollution. It, mm. th- that was the thing that threw me. I'm like, wait, they, they accounted for light pollution and also they started doing this a hundred years ago when there was way less light pollution. Um, and, 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 and it's actually our atmosphere providing a glow. And and it's very understated. It's not like those really publicity-hungry Aurora Borealis and Southern Lights, which get all the hot press because they're really pretty. This is you're not in Hobart on a lucky night looking south. Um, this is actually just a background glow that comes from, well, molecules getting excited electronically in our atmosphere. <laughs> and so what happens is during the day, oxygen and ozone get irradiated by sunlight and you get a lot of different electronic transitions that happen and you actually there's a day glow but we don't see it but at night some of these molecules are still luminescing chemically 
uh, at night, which means their electrons mm-hmm. are getting excited and relaxing, and it takes time. And as those electrons relax, which means they go to a lower energy state, they uh, they emit light. And so we get this chemiluminescence, and we've known about it for quite a while. But what was interesting was uh, recently a researcher from California at the SRI, International Institute, which <coughs> I'm not familiar with that much, has actually looked a little bit closer. And the explanations for which molecules cause this and how have still been a little bit open-ended. They know it has to do with oxygen as a molecule. So oxygen on its own would be one atom. Two atoms together would be the molecule. So oxygen on its own and another molecule of an oxygen and a hydrogen atom, um, which can exist in the gas phase. And they knew that it was these two atoms, but they didn't quite understand how. And so with a lot of, we'll call it global-scale modeling, chemical reaction measurements in labs, and even looking at data, I love this, from sounding rockets, where they launch, huh. launch rockets into the atmosphere mm-hmm. to get measures of the composition. They, um, they, they put together a study to show that the mechanisms behind this are a little bit not what they thought. And this is about 90 kilometers in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting, these oxygen atoms and these other o- oxygen-hydrogen molecules actually talk to each other electronically through a single excited oxygen atom. So one molecule transfers energy to a single oxygen atom, which transfers to the other molecule. And this back and forth is actually how they get the the chemiluminescence. And and so first, I like the story because NyQlo didn't know it was a thing. Uh, but second, what they actually said is they've been studying this since probably the 50s. And they kind of went, actually, no, the, the chemistry here is really different. And since it's related to ozone chemistry, they reckon they have to go back through and reevaluate mm-hmm. how NyQlo works in general. I don't think this has a huge, gosh, we're going to make a widget out of it implication. But when you look up at, at night and you think, oh, that glow, it must be how I'm feeling. No, it's chemistry. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, and the, the atmosphere is so complicated. I, I always find it fascinating. And it also teaches us a lot about what we see when we look at other planets as well. Because depending on the composition, yeah. you know, you'll de- get different um, information based. And in fact, if you can measure that glow, you may be able to determine what certain atmospheres in yeah other yeah. like. So you know, cool stuff. Cool, cool stuff. stuff. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of things very quickly. One is the um, shark specialist group of the International Union for uh, Conservation has come out with some new numbers on mako sharks, and it's not looking good. Apparently, um, 17 out of 58 shark species are now facing extinction. So, and this is heavily influenced by, you know, things like certain soups in certain parts of Asia and the need for, um, for sharks in there. I didn't know though the, the numbers of sharks that are actually caught each year, are, you know, are excessive. Um, and they're in the something upwards of 100 million sharks a year. Which, if you think of, if you were to think of that in terms of other apex predators on land, what that would mm. look like, and we don't we don't think about it that way because we don't see them. But if you if someone said to you a hundred million lions were caught every, yeah. well, they'd be it, right? Done. Yeah. Um, Makes you think differently about ordering <coughs> your fish and chips. Well, do, yeah. Do is what's the fraction of? Do the, is there an estimate of how much of the population you're catching annually? A hundred million is one percent, ten percent. I think this is this is part of the problem. Is that the counts are very difficult? Yeah, it's very difficult to enumerate. Yeah. I mean, yeah. any kind of fish population, and often yeah. we only do it by how many we can catch. Yeah, mm. exactly. <laughs> and so there's a there's a huge difference between sea sea and land um, extinction knowledge, 
And so, but one of the things that's interesting about sharks, and it's similar to a lot of the apex predators, but sharks are, you know, they've been ruling the oceans for over 400 million years and doing it pretty well. Mm. But one of the problems is, of course, is that they, they grow and they breed very slowly. Mm. So, and there are certain um, species that there's one in particular I was just reading about, um, that uh, called the green eye spur dog. Um, it's relatively newly classified as endangered, but its gestation period is three years. That's the longest of anything in the animal kingdom. Mm. So if you think about that, you know, you, you, you wipe out a, a, a close to a generation. It's going to take you mm. three years just, just to start the next one. Yeah. Which in terms of, you know, extinction rates are just, yeah, you're done. I mean, the other thing for sharks as well, and I mean, land predators as well, but particularly sharks is that as well as catching them directly, we also eat all their food. Mm. Like yeah, we've become yeah. incredibly, incredibly efficient at m- removing large fish from the ocean on yeah. mass. Yeah. And then that has that knock-on effect on shark populations as well. So it's both our direct predation of sharks, but also our removal of their food sources. And the third part, of course, is that when you fish for some of those food sources, you tend to, by accident, get your bycatch, which is the sharks that also feed on on those food sources. So they kind of get hit in many ways. But Mm. as as we know on land, your apex predators are absolutely crucial to the health of the overall, you know, biosphere. And and you take the apex predators out, you're in big trouble. So... um, yeah, th- thanks, Steven Spielberg. But we, <laughs> <laughs> I want to see. Can we can we have a, a shark hero film at some stage? I mean, I know there's um, a couple of cartoons out. Oh come um, on! What about that breakout? Shark's Tale. What about the breakout hit Baby Shark? I Wait, mean, well, sh- surely there's a whole new generation big. of like two year olds who are like going to come through <laughs> yeah. the system and just be like, no, I'm up for the sharks. But isn't there a is there's a line in there that's running away? Isn't there a running away line? It still sort of sells the shark as the bad guy. And right? the, the sharks in Finding Nemo are complex characters. Characters, oh, but they're not unmitigated good guys. Yeah. They're still a little they're, complicated. At least, at least they're trying. In, they're trying, and, they're and they're, trying. They're, you know they're, they've got a good support group, and they're trying not to feed on little fish. Absolutely, they're doing their best. <laughs> of course, the thing is, is they need to feed on little fish. That is exactly how the system works. So, anyway, um, if you're buying fish and chips, uh, folks, make sure you don't buy what is called flake. Yeah, it's, it's not flake. flake. It's a shark. Um, so, like, you know, at least we call kangaroo kangaroo here. Mm. I prefer we call it Skippy. That would be my choice, but <laughs> but we don't. But Flake is shark, and if you've listened to Radio Marinara at least once in the last 10 years, Bron's telling people that all the time. So keep away from the flake. Eat something that's sustainable. Triple. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Professor Craig White. He's the Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Science and Deputy Director of the Centre for Geometric Biology and Head of the Evolutionary Physiology Group at Monash University. Craig, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you're going to uh, educate us on a lot of stuff today, I think, because, um, first of all, there's a term we're going to get to later, which I haven't heard, which, uh, you know, after 27 years of broadcasting, it's a delight when I get a term I haven't heard because there's not that many. Um, but we we want to sort of talk to you very much about this work you've been doing on different animals and how much they consume and how that energy is used and how they, they sort of relate. And we saw the press release you put out, which very much compared a 4,000-kilogram 4, elephant to 4,000 kilograms of mice. Now, how many, how many mice is that? It's about 130,000. Right, so a few mice. And the expectation, I guess, if you just sort of take a first order sort of guess is that they use about the same amount of food um but this is this is far from the case yeah so if we run through the energy use and 
food consumption of animals of that size, what we find is that the elephant uses a very small proportion of the mm-hmm. equivalent size of mice. Mm. So if we have 4,000 kilograms of mice, the elephant might use... Five, seven percent, something like that. Okay, so I mean, it's yeah, not half. It's like a very small. It's a very small portion. And in terms of, uh, is the elephant unique in any way in that scenario? I know it's the big animal, but we also consider it a very slow animal that doesn't do a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, day to day. I mean, if you've seen them run, they are amazing creatures, but but they tend not to move around a lot. I mean, is that how do you factor that in? So if we look at this pattern and we extend it across different groups of animals, so we could look at insects and we'll find the mm-hmm. same pattern, a very small insect. Every gram of that will use a lot more energy than every gram of a big insect. Mm-hmm. We can go down to um, microbes, we see the same pattern. We can go up to whales and we see the same pattern. So we're seeing this across very diverse groups of animals. It's not just about mice and elephants, it's about all of life. Right, so the smaller animals just use more. They just use more. Yeah, and in terms of the sort of the reasoning behind that, I mean, I can... I've got some sort of instinctive ideas here around, you know, the, they, they, they move faster, they, they, they're more active relative to their, relative to their size, they cross larger distances. So, like, for example, a mouse will go over a very large distance relative to its size, and I guess the distance between its feet, whereas an elephant, by comparison, would not, I would have thought. I mean, how, how much is that the, the cause, do you think? So, that's probably a consequence. Right, so okay. what we see is these patterns are probably driving those kind of behaviours. Mm-hmm. A mouse can move more than an elephant for some reason. There's yep. some underlying biological constraint, some process of natural selection that's driving this pattern that's leading to those small animals being able to perhaps be more active than the very large ones. Yeah. And is there an advantage? I mean, what's the advantage for for this at various animal sizes? So, I mean, you know, everything, everything for me in the animal kingdom is a result of you know, millions and millions of years of evolution. So at some point we've come to these, you know, optimised levels for each size of, of animal. How, how does that pan out when you map it out? Does it, I mean, does it look like optimization? I think that's probably where the question has to go now. We've been looking for a long time for strong physical constraints based on surface area volume relationships, based on the distribution of oxygen and nutrients through transport networks, circulatory systems. And I think now we're going to have to start thinking about how natural selection has shaped these patterns rather than being a product of constraint. Perhaps those constraints are operated within and natural selection Mm -hmm. is providing. There's some advantage to that elephant to having a, a low energy expenditure for each gram that the mouse doesn't have. There's hmm. The advantage for the mouse is having a high energy expenditure for each gram. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's where we go next, is trying to understand it through that process, of that hmm. lens of evolutionary biology. So I, I was... Uh, there were two things on that. One, is it, is it correlated with lifespan, or is that a, 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 a result? And, and two, is this optimization constrained by other things as well? While energy consumption might also be linked to gestational period, thinking of Dr. Shane's three three-year pregnant shark, um, but how, do all those things link together, or, is it, or can it really just come down to energy consumption? So size is a very powerful predictor of biological function. So we see large animals have long gestations; they have small offspring, or have large offspring size. They have small numbers of offspring. So part of the reason we might see that happen, and one hypothesis for the evolution of those patterns, is that there's a the constraints in energy expenditure slows down the rate at which you can build a whale or an elephant, and so you have to do that more slowly over a longer period of time. It's a larger organism. To take longer to grow as well but it could be that sort of evolutionary process optimizing energy expenditure constrains the allocation of energy to reproduction to growth to things like that and slows down the life history of those animals there there must be an interaction here too between the evolution of these animals and their environment because obviously 
if I was in a relatively resource-constrained environment, then the idea of having a higher energy consumption animal optimise its, you know, or be optimised in an environment is less likely. Mm-hmm. Do, do, you, do you see that sort of scenario where, you know, for example, you might just get larger animals in certain areas where things are resource-rich or, or not? So we see things like the island rule where we have relatively small animals yeah. evolving on islands. Yeah. If we look at animals of the same size, we see animals that live in resource-poor environments tend to have lower energy expenditure, so two animals, one in a research-rich, resource-rich, one in a research-poor. Mm-hmm. The one in a research-poor environment will use energy more slowly. We typically mm. see that kind of pattern. Mm. I wonder about... Uh the life expectancy connection in terms of growth as well like we're a relatively large animal and we stop growing vertically about like a quarter of the way through our lives but is does that scale like does an insect only grow for a quarter of its life or do small animals grow like are they in like a puberty type phase for a higher proportion of their lives using a lot of energy to grow so there's quite a lot of variance across the animal kingdom in how that pattern plays out we'll see Mm. some that grow really fast have a really rapid burst of reproduction and that's it they're done um, and we'll see others that will grow more slowly allocate energy to reproduction over a longer period of time smaller clutches periodically that sort mm. of thing so we see all of those patterns play out that can be driven by the environment in which they live it can be driven by competition and processes like that mm. now you you took quite a bit of data from you know a whole different range of species and and sort of essentially modeled this i mean talk us through that process because it sounds like i mean it's a it's a very complex problem to you know take many different species and compare them because you know sometimes they they're hard to Compare. I mean, what sort of parameters did you use to, to so look at this? For us, it starts with measuring the energy expenditure of the animals, and mm. we do that the same way you might for a human with an exercise test. If we do an exercise, okay. a VO2 max test, we'll run on a treadmill with a mask on, we'll measure our res- expired respiratory gases, and we can use that to work out energy expenditure. For animals, we do exactly the same thing. We might put them in a chamber or put a little mask on them, and we measure how much oxygen they use, how much carbon dioxide they produce. Mm. So we've done that for animals varying in size from Drosophila weighing a milligram. I've measured corn weighing three kilograms, wombats in the 20 kilogram range, and other people have measured right up to elephants. There's a great study with elephants following a golf cart with a mask on, (laughs) having their metabolic rates measured, their oxygen carbon dioxide measured, and we can work out the energy expenditure of those animals from those parameters. Then we have to combine all that data, so we had data for several thousand species of animals from the literature and from our work, and we try and predict how evolution might look. So what we do is we take the genetic relationship between size and expenditure, and then we evolve the animals 100,000 times in the computer across the tree of life, and we see what patterns we get. And it turns out what we get is a pattern that's very different from what we see in real organisms. Mm. And this is what's telling us that there has to be some kind of natural selection process shaping the pattern that we see, because we can't evolve it by chance, we can't do it in the computer based on just the genetic relationships we see, so natural selection must be operating across those organisms. Yeah, and I mean, how complex is the pattern you're seeing? I mean, it, it seems... I mean, the fact that you can't get it by chance is interesting to me, because that that's sort of something you'd expect... Yeah, in many cases, I mean, because evolution is so punctuated in so many ways, in so many places, you know, like there's so much chance in there, and yet the fact that this is not playing out at all in this in this particular feature is, is fascinating. So what I find fascinating is that we're seeing consistent patterns across really diverse organisms that have very different functional properties, different nutrient transport systems, different ways of breathing, different mm. life histories. We see this same size relationship across all of these organisms, mm. and it would be it would have been really exciting and interesting if it did arise by chance. It would mean the last 150 years of research were missing just random probability (laughs) but it turns out there is something at play we just don't quite know what it is yet 
So will this study um, provide some insights around sort of the genetics or in, at an individual gene level? Is that is that part of the research or is that a future step? So I'm, I'm very much a whole organism person. I work on the evolution of whole organisms and how they fit in their ecology, but we are starting to work with collaborators at Monash and elsewhere um, that are interested and I'm interested as well in understanding what the genetic basis at the molecular level is in these differences that we see in energy expenditure. Are there variation in gene expressions patterns that might explain why some organisms are different to the other? Hmm. Are there any um, outliers that you've come across as yet? Because, I mean, there seems to me whenever we do these sorts of things, there's something like a jellyfish or something that says, you know what, my cells aren't going to die like everyone else's. And there's there's something. Are there any outliers that you've come across? So probably a good example of an outlier would be the naked mole rat. Mm -hmm. So they live in a eusocial mammal, which is very rare. So they live in communal colonies in Africa. They have very, very low rates of energy expenditure, much more similar to a lizard than to a mammal. They're not very good at maintaining their body temperature. Mm -hmm. And so they live in an environment where the environment is hot, it's humid, so they probably can't produce too much body heat. They'll get their metabolic, if their metabolic rate's too high, their body temperature will get too high. And they have a caste-based system to do their foraging. Mm. So they have one queen, they have a caste-based system that collect all the food and bring it back. So they have quite a different ecology that might explain why it is that their energetic physiology is so different to other organisms. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wanted to ask a similar question around the insects, because of course we have so many different scenarios socially in terms of insects. You know, you've got your, your bees and you've got your ants, but then you've got very different sorts of, of insect beetles and so forth that have a very different interaction and there's there's the same rule sort of applies regardless presumably of of the the types of insects you're looking at yep so insects have a very similar pattern to reptiles and amphibians right yeah Yeah. what about things that fly does that uh, particularly birds does that because their 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 mass ratios are, are so different i mean they're designed to be light so does does it still correlate with mass or is there something about volume or surface area or anything that comes into play so flight's an interesting one. For insects, we'll see that flighted insects tend to have higher metabolic rates, higher rates of energy expenditure than non-flighted insects. That's mm. probably because they're packed full of flight muscle, which is a very energetically demanding tissue. Yep. For birds, if we compare them to, say, mammals, we actually see much less of a difference. Birds, on average, have a slightly higher body temperature, a slightly higher metabolic rate, but the difference isn't great. But it doesn't seem to be about flight per se there, because bats also fly but they have a much lower metabolic rate than other mammals so bats are on the low end of metabolism birds are on the high end so we have sort of different strategies operating across those two different groups do do bats fly as much as birds fly though like bat flight seems to be very episodic right like they sleep all day then they go out for an hour or something come back and chill out whereas you often see birds that are in flight throughout the day that's a good one um so i I would think, so we have, across birds, we see similar diversity in the propensity for flight, and we see that consistent difference between birds and mammals, and we see, so it's probably not so much about that, would be my guess. Yeah, mm. and I guess a lot of birds do spend a lot of time on the ground as well. They don't all fly all the time, so, mm. yeah, yeah it's, so it just varies. It's a little hard to get a generalisation out of that one. Mm. Mm. Well, Craig, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I think the um, the interesting thing is here, of course, as you say, there's a non-random element to it, and and uh, the thing I love about evolution is when you when you start looking at what drives aspects of evolution the answers usually start popping out but this is a this is a complex problem because the drivers for all the different species you're talking about 
you know, there's some consistencies there, but there's also a lot of differences and a lot mm. of very big differences. But somehow there's something in the evolutionary process that's reacting the same way to all of those differences, which would be kind of cool to, you know, put your finger on that. So good, yeah, good, good luck. I mean, it's, uh, it sounds like a pretty, uh, pretty difficult problem, but, um, one that'd be fascinating to, to learn about. So thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Professor Craig White is Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Science, Deputy Director of the Center for Geometric Biology and Head of the Evolutionary Physiology Group at Monash University. 102.7. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Matt Ruby. He is a lecturer in psychology at La Trobe University. Matt, welcome to RRR. Thanks for having me on. Look, it's great to have you on. We're going to be talking about insects and creepy crawlies. And for me, I'm a bit arachnophobic myself, but other stuff, I'm good to go. Um, so as long <laughs> as you're not going to ask me to eat a spider, we'll be fine. Not this morning, nope. <laughs> now, you, you've been looking at um, this, I guess, the, the response that people are having to this idea, which is becoming more and more prominent, that one day we'll all be sucking back on the whole, you know, insect sandwich and stuff. And, you know, because the reality is we know that most of our farming practices at the moment are environmentally incredibly damaging. Mm. And the potential to source protein through through insects is something that's, um, you know, is looking to be a good and viable option to feed the world. So, first of all, what sort of responses are we getting, like, in terms of people just, and insects? I mean, what, what's the what's the lay of the land at the moment in terms of people's interest or fear or concerns around uh, consumption of insects? Sure. So our data so far uh, have examined the U.S. and India, attitudes in those mm-hmm. countries, and... Yeah, the the default attitude tends to be a bit of skepticism. Uh, our American participants were much more open to the idea than our Indian participants were. Uh, there was just a lot more sort of just absolute resistance in our Indian populations that no matter the risks, no matter the benefits, uh, they just wouldn't be uh, interested in eating them. Whereas the Americans, they they were skeptical, but they said they could be convinced. Hmm. Um, we're any of your Indian participants strict vegetarians, though? Because strict vegetarianism mm. is almost normal in India, right? So a lot of them would just be like, well, they're animals, so no. Yes, so um, about a, th- a third of India is vegetarian, and our sample was somewhat similar. But even if we took out the vegetarians, the pattern was still quite similar. So it didn't mm. seem to be driven just by that. Mm. And what, I mean, what sort of um, concerns were people having? I mean, I, I can imagine... There's a big difference between me getting something that has protein derived from insects mm. in it and me eating chocolate coated insects. Or, you, you know, like there's, there's that difference where I know, I know I'm crunching something and it's a cricket as opposed to, you know, there's a sausage I'm eating and the, the protein sourced from crickets. Yeah. yeah, so there's a couple things going on there. So one one of the major concerns that people were raising was concerns about becoming sick, becoming ill. Mm. A lot of people have these associations between insects and filth and mm, disease. Yeah. And the more processed foods have probably taken that into account. Uh, things have probably been heated to a quite a high degree, et cetera. So any microbes yeah. that are in there are probably dead by that point. Uh, but also from a sensory perspective, people were just much more willing to eat, say, a cookie or a flatbread made with some cricket flour then you crunch into a taco containing some grasshoppers <laughs> because it's a very different texture thing. You're less likely to get a leg stuck in your teeth. People are just much more open to eating things that had insect flour in them. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. That's, I mean, it's also a little bit weird, though, especially in Australia where, like, we love prawns, right, mm. and we eat soft-shell crab, 
which is kind of anatomically very similar to a grasshopper, right? Like it has a crunchy shell and soft flesh inside it. Mm. Like you would think that a, once you're eating prawns, you would think the leap to locusts just isn't that far. But clearly it is for people, right? Like, Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So you raise a, a good point that physiologically and uh, taste-wise, they can be quite similar. Um, I know some research has tried to brand locusts as sky prawns because the taste <laughs> is supposed to be so similar. And um, I mean... Attitudes to this sort of thing can really shift over time. So I'm originally from Maine in the United States. We're well known for our lobster. And there are documented riots back from a couple hundred years ago in prisons where prisoners were being fed lobster too often and were disgusted by being fed what was then considered this disgusting food. And fast forward to today, when people pay a premium for Maine yeah, lobster, it's become yeah. this delicacy. And back in the day, it was looked down upon quite heavily yeah it's interesting now you've looked at um what you refer to as sort of gateway foods as well this idea that certain other foods might i I suppose be predictors of how likely we are to take on these new sorts of foods i mean talk a bit about that yeah so that was one of our quirkier findings that uh, people seem to love quite a bit we basically found that the extent to which people had previously eaten sushi predicts Mm. their willingness to eat an array of different insect foods and the idea here is that most people, uh, at least from the U.S. and from India, when they first encounter sushi, they're disgusted at the thought of eating raw fish. But if you can overcome that initial disgust to try this food that you know is well-liked in many parts of the world, you're probably having you know, that sort of general likelihood to overcome that with, say, eating insect foods or other types of new cuisines. Mm. It doesn't look as good, though, does it? The insects don't look quite as good as the sushi. So in your survey, did you actually ask people to kind of rank themselves how they perceived their... Um, variety or their tolerance or their interest like in adventurous foods like you, when you meet people would be like yeah. I know people who would eat anything put in front of them like, <laughs> yeah. I know I've got friends who no matter what it is they would give it a crack give it a crack but yeah. I know other people who are just like not nah, if it's not meat and three potatoes <laughs> I'm not interested so there's already like a very broad cultural spectrum was that controlled for in your study that was so one of the things that we measured is called food neophobia which is a fancy word for saying how freaked out people are by eating foods they're not familiar with. Uh, That's a very established scale from the 90s that measures exactly that. So how open people are to trying foods from uh, different parts of the world, different styles of cooking, different flavor profiles, and that is a very strong predictor of willingness to eat insects. It's, it's interesting to me, one of the things that you know we, we need to talk about here is the idea of people just not knowing what's in their foods, because, I mean, even at the moment, if you actually sat someone down and, and said, look, this is what's in your, you know, this frozen meal you bought at the mm. supermarket, they would probably be quite shocked at how much the petroleum companies have involvement in in the foods we eat and so and just what's in those those particular foods and we've 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 done a lot on the show over the years about palm oil and various other things Mm. that have massive impacts on various things around the world and in many cases unless you're buying fresh foods that you're cooking yourself that you know you know the components you just often don't know what's in the foods i mean insects to me in a sense fall into this category of you know you wonder how much is if people don't know you know, how willing are they to actually take on these new foods? Whereas it's, it's different to going down to your local butcher and buying yourself a kilo of crickets, right? I mean, there's, there is a big variation there that's hard to take into account, I think. There really is. And I think that, yeah, this is part of this bigger idea that people often uh, don't really know what they're eating. So when you confront them with, you know, the idea of eating insects, uh, if they knew the, the particulars of how their, their quote-unquote regular meal got on their plate, they might have similar concerns. But it's just uh, the way that... Uh, 
um, especially with animal agriculture, the way that things are done, it's often kept out of sight, out mm. of mind for at least people in the cities. They don't see how it's made, they don't see how it's killed, and they don't really yeah. want to. Yeah, that Whereas is with right. an insect, it's easier to imagine how yeah. things happen. Yeah, because they see them in their houses. Exactly. Um, now, in, in terms of the insects themselves, was there a variation between the types of insects? Did you get into that? Because I can imagine, I can imagine eating a cricket or a worm, um, but when we get to, you know, a huntsman, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not so, I'm not so sold on that. <laughs> like that to me. And that's only because people of the show know I'm a bit arachnophobic, so the idea of coming near these things at all is a problem for me. But I could, you know, is there a variation between the types of insects? and just how willing people are to consume them? There definitely is. So we looked at a range of, I think, about eight different insects, and people were most willing to eat crickets, grasshoppers, and mealworms. Hmm. Uh, they were most uh, skeptical about eating flies and cockroaches. Oh, right. Again, probably because of associations with dirt and disease. Yeah. yeah. And spiders? Uh, so we didn't measure spiders. We just looked at attitudes towards different insects, but... Um, I do expect that those would probably be towards the cockroach end for a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, any, anything that falls into the, you know, creepy crawly and, you know, insects are not, you know, like, to me is, you know, things like centipedes and so right. forth. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine people being a bit, but, but again, it depends on how it's utilized in the food chain. You know, if it's, if it's just a source of protein and it goes through what I would call the blender process mm. and I don't know, it doesn't look like that anymore to me, then there's less of a, less of a concern, I think. So, yeah. Well, um, it's, uh, so what's next in terms of, uh, you know, as you said, sushi is a good gateway sort mm-hmm. of scenario. So it's a predictor, but how do you, how do you go about getting people to move in this direction? Because obviously we can't keep doing things the way we're doing long term. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea of using alternative forms of, of protein, whether we're growing sort of other things in a vat or we're using mm-hmm. insects, we have to get into that sort of bulk model of protein production. So what's next? So what's next is several things. So this is part of a larger overall program of research about how people feel about eating uh, protein alternatives. So insects alongside cultured meats, alongside plant-based quote-unquote meat products that we're seeing on the rise in many countries uh, that I think if we're going to address food insecurity, we need a sort of multi-pronged approach involving all sorts of different possibilities. So seeing how people about those people feel about those different things. I'm personally a bit more excited about the plant-based stuff myself than the mm. insects, but I think it's good to consider a broad array of options. And uh, starting in a couple months, actually, with some of my students at my uni, we're going to look at Australian attitudes towards eating insects and try and figure out if there's any sort of culturally specific predictors of that here. Yeah, strange. We'll eat anything, mate. Absolutely anything. As long as as long as on a fresh bit of bread, we'll eat anything with a bit That's of tomato my, sauce. Absolutely. That's my experience. Chuck it on the barbecue, and we'll eat it. Um, Matt, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It's fascinating, and we're hearing more and more about this. So it'll be very very curious to see how this plays out because I think it's it's inevitable that we're going to do this. So it, as you say, the the sushi scenario twenty years ago, you couldn't find it in Melbourne. Now you know you can't walk a block without finding a, a sushi shop of some type, and everyone's eating it. So you know you do get cultures to make those trends when necessary. So it'd be interesting to see how quickly we can do that to get them eating grasshoppers. Thanks so much for chatting to us on Triple R. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Matt Ruby is a lecturer in psychology at the Trobe University. Three. Triple Uh, welcome back, everybody. We are in the final throes of the show. Well, actually, it's about 13 minutes, which is pretty good. But uh, Dr. Kat Snow is with us, and she's an epidemiologist. And we had her on a few weeks back, and we were talking about a range of things, but we never got to talk about e-cigarettes. Can you give us the rundown? For those who don't know, what is an e-cigarette? It's not an app on your phone, is it? It is not, no. <laughs> um, so people will have probably seen people walking around with them. So they're a little handheld device that... 
uh, heats uh, liquid inside of it, which you can then inhale the vapour from mm-hmm. um, and exhale. And you sort of see people like walking down the street exhaling these big kind of white clouds mm. of, yeah, of yeah. vapour. So people probably will have seen them around in Melbourne. Yep. Um, but, it, yeah, it's an alternative to smoking tobacco cigarettes, basically. So, so what are you actually... Like, what's what's the fluid? Like, what what's in it? Yeah, so there's a few different uh, sort of options out there for people. So it's, uh, it's usually a combination of vegetable glycerin and then something called propylene glycol. Mm-hmm. Um, which that are just sort of like healthy. a base. <laughs> well, I think, I think propylene glycol is actually an asthma medication sometimes. Okay. I think, it, I think it's right. used for other purposes, like other medical purposes. Um, and then added to that, people are adding flavors and also adding nicotine. Okay. Um, particularly for people who are trying to switch away from cigarettes. So yep. it's like a nicotine replacement, like gum or patches, but it's a bit more similar to smoking. And so people, uh, tend to like it a bit more because they still sort of get to, sort of fill that urge to smoke, which mm. you don't get with a gum or a patch. So, so when you say similar, do you mean similar from the point of view of the sort of physicality of it or the way it interacts with the body? Or well, so the mostly the, the behaviour that you're you're putting something to your mouth and you're right. inhaling something and you can feel yourself inhaling something, yeah, which yeah. Um, is actually sort of an underappreciated important part of smoking and, yeah. and of a lot of other drugs, right? Like the actual behaviour of taking the drug. I mean, people say something like, oh, I love smelling the coffee as I'm making it in the morning, mm. right? Like it's mm. more than just getting the substance into your body. There's also people have all this stuff about how they get the substance but, in. But vapor delivery through the lung is an exceptionally efficient form of drug delivery. It's amazing mm. just how mm. well that can work compared to mm. chewing on something, having it go through the stomach, or even yeah. diffusion through a patch. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of drugs that it's it's not a popular form of delivery for a lot of other pharmaceuticals, but can be a very effective one. Mm. Mm. So it's still got the same amount of nicotine or less than smoking or how does it compare in terms of its addictive nature? Um, so, I mean, n- nicotine is nicotine is nicotine is addictive full stop. Mm. Um, so cigarettes vary in terms of the amount of nicotine that they have in them and the, the vapour, sorry, the liquid for the e-cigarettes can vary as well. So you can get it in stronger or weaker doses. Um, one of the... Th- things that's sort of interesting about it is that it like a cigarette is a cigarette whereas with a an e-cigarette you could take one puff and mm-hmm. put it down and get rid of it oh, or right. you could sit there and puff on it continuously for five minutes oh. right? right so you sort of have more control over the dose and how much you have whereas like once people light a cigarette they tend to finish it yeah right yeah. so it's sort of their e-cigarettes are a bit more customizable and controllable i think than cigarettes are or uncontrollable in that regard right yeah, yeah, you can also do a yeah. lot more right yeah, you but, but you'll more. but you'll feel sick right and like in the same way that you'd feel sick if you smoked like, three cigarettes in a row right. like you'd feel ill and right? in australia at the moment how regulated are e-cigarettes yeah so australia's taken a very hard line uh so that the device itself is legal in australia and it's mm-hmm. legal to buy uh, liquid without nicotine in it in Australia, but the actual nicotine liquid is illegal. So people who want that at the moment and who are trying to use e-cigarettes to quit smoking in Australia at the moment have to illegally order the nicotine liquid online from other countries and like sneak it through customs. So hang on, let me just get this straight. So so I can I can go down from the station right now to the Seven Eleven and buy myself some. Winnie Blues, or yep. whatever they're called these days. I don't know. Are they still got Benson the Hedges? Are they all these yep, brands? Yeah, they're all still know? out there. I think plain packaging has worked if you can't name a cigarette <laughs> brand. Well, well, this is only because I worked in a, a milk bar when I was like 12 and I, I knew... You, you still know, remember. These, and I still remember these ones. They, they had these Alpine pictures on them. They just look fresh. I remember yep. that from my childhood. Um, thankfully, did not partake. But uh, So I can go and legally buy a source of nicotine off yep. the shelf. Yep. 
um, on mass, an on incredibly mass. harmful version. You can yeah. you can buy tobacco, which we know is incredibly, incredibly, yeah. incredibly harmful. We know how bad it is, but I can't and buy. You can't buy a much less sauce. harmful alternative to help you quit. Exactly. It, it's, so that's interesting. And, and so I remember when I was in year seven at Mooney Pond Central School. Hello, everyone who went to that school. Yeah. And um, we had these little experiments we did where we took a cigarette and we connected it up to this little chamber with a piece of filter paper with a syringe on the other end. And we basically smoked a cigarette with a syringe <laughs> through a piece of filter paper. Sure. And to this day, I remember this massive black stain mm. on the piece of filter paper from one cigarette. Yeah. Now, how does... I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. It's not just nicotine, of mm. course. There's a lot of other stuff coming out of the cigarette. I mean, how does that compare to what you would get from an e-cigarette in terms of that stuff that damaged the other crap in the lungs. Yeah, so the the chemical research that I've seen has shown that e-cigarettes are about sort of 2 to 5% as harmful or as toxic as tobacco cigarettes, so they're much, much, much less. They have... As in 20 times less? Yes. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, 20 20 to... 50. Yeah, 50 times less harmful. I think one of the challenging things in Australia, because we've had such a successful... Uh, tobacco control response in Australia mm-hmm. and we've really successfully communicated to people how dangerous tobacco is yep. but one of the consequences is that a lot of people have gotten cross wires and they think that it's the nicotine that is that harmful so they think that it's nicotine that causes lung right. cancer or whatever right. and they so they see e-cigarettes and they're like oh well that's just as bad as smoking because it's yeah, the nicotine right, that's right. bad for you and I mean nicotine is bad for you and it is addictive, the addictive but yeah. there's so much more in tobacco yeah. that is so yeah. harmful rather than just the nicotine but, but because of this crosswired if you look at the devices themselves it's not just the unregulated ones from China, but the fact that you're heating something mm. in a container, it's got a lot of electrical connections, you're yeah. heating it a lot. Some of that solder might be a little, have some volatile components, mm. and all of a sudden you're delivering metals that came along with the solder and the vapor. Yeah. And and the devices themselves aren't really regulated to that yeah. level of, is it a medical device? Is it delivering something we're going to be contacting because they think, oh, it's just smoking? Yeah. So so I think, yeah, I, I would definitely like to see them better regulated in Australia so that we could address some of those problems. Yeah. I'd like to see regulations on, like, the manufacturing of the devices themselves and also, like, a pharmaceutical approach to the liquid so people do know exactly what they're mm. inhaling, they know mm. exactly what nicotine ghosts they're getting because at the moment you're buying it from the equivalent of, like, an online tobacco store basically right right? so it's not it's not being treated as a medical product um but it's a real shame that australia has isn't also looking at it as a medical product they're just saying no that's a tobacco product we don't want tobacco products so we're not going to have that here and then people are getting them basically illegally so the immediate question on that though is i i see that this is an alternative to tobacco and if you can get people off tobacco onto this there are definite health benefits but what what are the numbers like around people who just start on e-cigarettes? Because that presumably is a problem in itself. Yeah, it is. And that's, there's been a lot of concern from the tobacco control community and the public health community, particularly around tobacco companies marketing these products mm. to adolescents to try to get them hooked on nicotine and then maybe shift them over to smoking. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that that is a concern. They are... There, ha- there are some statistics around how many adolescents are using them. It's not heaps, but it is some. And some of those adolescents do transition to smoking tobacco, which is obviously a huge problem. Mm. So that's another reason to regulate it, you know, and make sure 
that we're we're dealing with that it is definitely an issue um at the same time though adolescent smoking rates have been going down in australia and in most english-speaking countries for a very long time tobacco is also incredibly incredibly expensive now it's not affordable yeah. to the oh, average yeah. adolescent yeah. like when i smoked as an adolescent cigarettes were about ten dollars a packet yep. now they're, they're like, like 25 30 yeah, 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 yeah. right so the average teenager can't afford to switch to tobacco well, not, not a pack a day. um not a pack <laughs> yeah, a day yeah, no yeah. um but yeah it is that's definitely a concern but the the flip side of that though like we wouldn't sell methadone to teenagers Right? Like, we would never right. do that. Yeah, that would yeah. be a crazy thing to do. But that doesn't mean that methadone doesn't have value as a public health intervention yep. for people who are addicted to opiates. Yeah. And that's how I see e-cigarettes. Yeah, I don't want them sold to teenagers, but they're a really important intervention for people who are currently addicted to cigarettes. you got to be careful about that analogy, because methadone is not made by some of the largest infective marketing companies in the world. No, absolutely. Uh, for and, sure. And, and so there is that argument that I think you have to be very careful about this, because as you said, from a tobacco company's viewpoint, possibly, I don't know, I'm not a tobacco company, their younger generation is going down. Another marketing yep. hook in that isn't contentious, yep. as contentious or socially acceptable, mm. could be looked at in a more Machiavellian way as a yeah. way to grow that market. Oh, and absolutely. so if Australia has worked so hard about limiting tobacco products, yeah. one could see the argument about saying, let's not introduce a new one that yeah. graze the area between acceptance. Yeah. Based on it is a possible way to mitigate. Yeah, 100%. But you could, again, like, and so I think we need to think really carefully about what the correct model for e-cigarettes is and how we can use them most effectively. But the evidence at the moment is that they're really effective at helping people quit smoking. So it would be a real mm. shame to just take an absolute zero, not no way, not no how approach. And so that's my question. At the moment, e-cigarettes are a consumer product. You know, would you imagine that in the future maybe they were banned as a consumer product but available as a public health product to those people who are on supervised um, programs for, for quitting? quitting. Yeah. It, yeah. In the same way that, you know, Dr Ray met methadone is only available in a supervised program for quitting you know would you imagine that it's a shift from a consumer product to a to a prescribed product yeah so that's yeah that's definitely one option that you could take you could have it as a prescription only product from your gp and go and say hey i need a prescription for this much nicotine liquid because i'm trying to quit Mm. smoking um my concern about that model, though, is exactly as you said before, Shane. So that means you've got to go to the GP and get a prescription and go to the pharmacy to get your e-cigarette, but you can still walk to 7-Eleven and buy a pack right. of smokes. Mm. Yeah. And is that what we want, right? Or do we want to make it easier to get the less harmful product than yeah. the incredibly harmful product? And I would I would lean towards making it easier to get e-cigarettes than to get tobacco. Yeah. But that's me as a very kind of liberal harm reduction kind mm. of person so there's a debate about that I mean, since we're almost out of time but i was thinking in terms of things like nicotine patches is there an analogy there as well where can i just go and buy nicotine patches and then later get hooked on on cigarettes in the yeah. same sort of way you is could that... but nicotine patches aren't cool whereas yeah. cigarettes are kind of cool right but yeah i mean you can buy nicotine gum at the supermarket and who so right? and, and i think we we kind of we kind of touched on this but just quickly who owns the e-cigarette industry yeah so a lot of tobacco companies yeah. are are investing really heavily in this exactly as dr ray said and that's part of the reason that the public health community is very skeptical and very worried about them mm, because yeah. a lot of the time it is tobacco <laughs> companies that are really pushing these but then i think that means that the public health community also has to step up and and think about this carefully and work out what the appropriate approach is. 
Yeah, I mean, they've been evil in the past, but if we can get them going in a direction that is less evil, you this know... Is, yeah, this is what yeah, I think. Like, if yeah. BP suddenly started producing solar panels... We'd be all for I'd it. celebrate, right? Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that would be awesome. And so I yeah, kind but, of think if these companies want to produce e-cigarettes, I mean, I don't want to kind of completely shut them down necessarily because it is less harmful than cigarettes. Mm, mm, it's tough. Well, the big issues, folks. Uh, I think uh, the bottom line is, though, keep away from cigarettes full stop if you can. And, for sure. Um, That's clear. <coughs> yeah. But the other I think thing it's really interesting that the discussions that we've had today have really come back to a lot of um, cultural and social issues, like whether it's about e-cigarettes or eating bugs. bugs. I think that, you know, I think what today's show has really said to me is that science isn't in isolation and that the the cultural and societal impacts and and acceptance of science is actually really critical to advances. Absolutely. And we've learned our lessons on that one with genetically modified foods and vaccinations, I think. So it's something that all scientists need to pay a lot of attention to, regardless of your field. We are almost out of time, folks. You have been listening to Einstein at GoGo. Thanks so much for your time. Cats, no, good to have you back on the show. And um, I'm sure we'll do it again at some stage. There's so many health issues that, uh, you know, you, you seem to... I, I wasn't even sure what your actual field is. You seem to know about <laughs> all of the different areas. Dr. Crystal, good to see you. Always a pleasure. Uh, Dr. Ray, good to see you. Thanks so much. Uh, Lou's been doing our Twitter feed. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to us. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again in one week. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.